Hi everyone, Data Stories number 29. Hi Moritz, how are you? Hey Enrico, I'm doing great. What's going on? Yeah, it's super windy outside, so autumn has arrived. Uh, I just came back from Push Conference in Munich, that was great fun. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, that's like a, a user interface design slash data visualization conference. Two days. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Was was really good. So I met a few old friends and new ones and had a good time. Great. Great to hear that. Yeah. Good. Good. How about you? I'm good. We are having good weather. It's a little cold, but it's it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Semester has started. Semester, well... It has started a long time ago, so we are mid midway through the semester. Oh yeah, crazy! Really, really interesting. What's going on? Um, yeah, but we have a, such a special guest today that I don't feel like talking about about ourselves too much. <laughs> so we have Ben Schneiderman on the show. Hi, Ben. How are you? Welcome on the show. Hi, Enrico and Moritz. Good to be here. It's it's such a pleasure and honor for us to have you here. I, I have to admit I'm a little nervous for the first time while recording. <laughs> I hope it's going to fade away in a few minutes or seconds. <laughs> That's fine. So okay. I, I don't think I have to introduce Ben. I mean, there are so many things to say. I mean, so that we, we will focus this. We could actually talk for hours or even ages, but we focus. We will focus this uh, episode on tree maps and more specifically on the tree map art project. But before we do that, I want to let Ben introduce himself. I'm, I'm sure he's going to do a much better job than me introducing him. <laughs> ben, in case, in case we have some listeners who don't know you or don't know exactly who you are, can you tell us a little bit about your background, what you've done, what you're doing, what are your interests and so on? Well, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, my background is in computer science, doing database and file design and optimization techniques, very traditional computer science. And I began to be interested more in the psychological issues and studied the way programmers worked and then began to study uh, how uh, users of interfaces uh, do their work. So my book in 1980, Imagine, was called Software Psychology. And that talked about these things. And uh, that was a big success. So that encouraged me and uh, began to become 20% of an experimental psychologist in studying the way people use uh, computers. And that led me more and more towards the visual aspect, which was in harmony with my, my interests in photography. My uncle was a famous photographer named David Seymour. So that was my potential interest you know, uh, potential alternate career, but I chose to keep it my hobby. And many of you know that I, uh, I'm always taking pictures at conferences of professionals, uh, but I made that a hobby. And uh, my work became computer science, and that worked out very well. And over the years, I became more and more interested in combining these interests, making visual interfaces, and representing information in visual formats. So, I would say for me, the important step was 1981, uh, 1982, when I composed the theory of direct manipulation, the visual representation of the uh, objects of interest and the rapid incremental and reversible operations that users could uh, apply. 
<clears throat> and then they could immediately see the results of their work. And so that influenced the development of graphic user interfaces and video games and many other systems. Uh, there are many other people who had such ideas, but I think people appreciated that I wrote down the psychological foundations and gave some principles for the design that they could uh, teach to others and apply in their own work. Um, so by the late 80s, I was already making visualizations, and the story we have today is of a particular challenge of tree maps, which began in, in 1990. Um, so I was... Uh, uh, running our laboratory, the Human Computer Interaction Laboratory at the University of Maryland, began in 1983. And uh, we had a nice group that was working on doing empirical studies. And uh, there were 14 people who were sharing a single hard drive on a Macintosh. <laughs> Imagine that. And so I was always uh, in trouble because the hard drive would full up, be filled, and I would have to run around to figure out who to bother to <laughs> free up some space. And as you know, you you, you click Apple I, and uh, you get to see a textual list of the number of bytes in each directory. But I wanted more than that, and so I had to do that 14 times to understand who was using the space. But I also wanted recursive uh program, which would go not just to the first level, but would go deeper and deeper. And I worked on that for months. And finally, one day I had this great aha moment <laughs> of discovery. Of, and it took me three days to convince myself that it was the right idea. And, uh, and, and uh, uh, so that's where the original notion of the visual representation of a hierarchy came from that you would show on the screen, on one screen, without scrolling, an entire hard drive in mm -hmm. a color-coded, size-coded manner that was recursive and would go down for as many layers as necessary. So that was a, a great fun. And um, Brian Johnson was a PhD student who made the first uh, implementation on Macintosh. And uh, so we began to tell the story, and I believed that within a few years this would be on everybody's hard drive. <laughs> because it was so uh, I have one was, on on my machine, so at least for me, you succeeded yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But as you know, I think it's interesting, and come across the issue that new ideas are slow to be accepted. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of improvements, adaptations. It takes a lot of effort till people learn about these ideas until they also change their process of problem solving. Of I think that's the central feature, how to shift the approaches of uh, solving problems from textual ones from numeric from tabular towards a visual approach and so uh, I've come to realize that it will take not just 10 or 20 or 30 years but it will take 50 and 100 years to make such changes and mm -hmm. I think if we see how Cartesian coordinates from Rene Descartes took uh, hundreds of years to gain widespread acceptance 
and the works of William Playfair in the 18th century took, you know, more than a hundred years till they gained acceptance. I think we have the great power of computers now, which are such wonderful visual tools uh, that uh, enable us to try things that are new, to catch people's attention. And then, of course, we have the Internet that helps us disseminate ideas in a way that uh, is potentially more rapid than ever before. Uh, so that's, uh, I think, the interesting framework of it. But the, the tree map idea was a simple concept to show an entire hierarchy, whether it's a thousand nodes or a million nodes, to see it all on one screen at once with no scrolling. So that was the challenge. And mm -hmm. uh, it was satisfying to find one solution, uh, which we called the slice and dice method. Uh, and so we were quite excited about that and, uh, uh, and began to find many applications in other areas, sports data, financial data, that is portfolio, um, stock market portfolios are nicely represented by tree maps. And so we began to find a variety of applications uh, for this idea. And uh, after a few years, as is our style, we gave up on, on tree maps. We said, okay, we did our work, we published our papers, <laughs> and we're finished. And so we put it aside, we move on to other topics. Um, but by 1998-99, suddenly there was a great growth of interest because of two things. Um, Jarka van Wyk in, in, in Netherlands developed the squarified algorithm for tree maps, which were a very nice improvement. And at the spell, and, and, and Martin Wattenberg developed what I call the cluster tree map. And both of these had the advantage of using more square-like aspect ratios to show the regions. Um, and, uh, and that turned out to be a really important improvement. Um, what, was, what was amazing to me was I was very devoted towards the tree map layout algorithm, the slice and dice algorithm, keeping the data in alphabetical order or mm -hmm. some numeric order. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't give up that constraint. <laughs> so I never even thought about the idea. And they both changed the game by realizing that square-like aspect ratios were very important for visual appeal and for organizing the information, but they gave up the or the orderliness of the slice and dice uh, algorithm. So I got involved with Martin Wattenberg, who's a brilliant programmer and a great designer, and uh, helped with his work at SmartMoney.com to make the market map, which became maybe the widely, the most widely known um, implementation of tree maps and certainly helped a great deal in, in disseminating to many people. So finding a good application that many people are interested in, like the stock market, turned out to be very important. And he used the area of each rectangle 
uh, to indicate the market capitalization, that is the value of the company. Uh, and then the color would indicate whether the stock was rising or falling. So green stocks were rising and red stocks were falling. And that made great sense to people. And in one screen, you could see about 600 stocks and you could immediately see which of the 11 sectors was doing well, energy or telecommunications or software um, or capital goods, et cetera, or health. You could see which sectors were more green or more red. And so that was a very important application and it gained widespread um, popularity. So we came back into the tree map game and I was determined to find another algorithm which would uh, still give you good square-like aspect ratios, but would preserve ordering. The order. Yeah. yeah, the order. So that became the next generation of tree map algorithms. And that was done with some wonderful partners with Martin Wattenberg and Ben Peterson, both amazing, terrific programmers, designers. And that is maybe one of my most uh, satisfying papers that uh, was published in 1992 in the uh, ACM Transactions on Graphics. It had everything. It had design ideas. It had usability studies. It had algorithms uh, and optimization of algorithms. So there was something in it for everybody, and uh, it, it uh, helped raise attention. So that's a good start on the early history. Um, let me pause and see if you have any questions about that. <laughs> well, I never heard the old story like that. I mean, it's really interesting to see how it evolved. Uh, it's it's really amazing, actually. Yeah, and it's great that you started like from personal need, and I think so many good inventions come like just from this one itch that you scratch, and then you think like, "Ah, huh, this turned out to be useful. How else could we use it?" So I I, I wasn't aware of that backstory too. It's fantastic. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. That's become part of a larger philosophy that good basic science happens when you work on real applied problems. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was curious to hear from you, Ben, when you invented the tree maps, did you already conceptualize the idea of information visualization or this came later on? The general concept of information visualization? Yeah. Um, I would say that was an emerging idea, you know, okay. that um, this was an early example, but there were others who were also doing visual programming, um, the conferences on visual languages and visual programming uh, were already in place. Uh, the Macintosh was beginning, or at least the Xerox Star and Lisa and then the Macintosh and video games were beginning to appear. Air traffic control systems were also visually based. And so there was a kind of movement towards visual, I would say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm just curious to hear, do, do, you, do you still have the original code of tree maps somewhere? Wow. <laughs> Probably. That would be Probably. nice for a museum for mm -hmm. Angela Antonelli, right, Moritz? <laughs> It would yeah. be fantastic. In which language did yeah. you implement it? Oh, boy. It was on the Macintosh, <laughs> and I think it was probably oh, in Laurent Panel. So, 
That's a good question. I don't even remember. But Brian Johnson um, continues to work for eBay, and I'm in touch with him, so we could find out. <laughs> Moritz, what's the name of the curator from MoMA? It's not Angela, right? It's Laura Paola Antonelli. Antonelli. Ah, Paola. Paola Antonelli. I should know it because I'm Italian. Paola Antonelli. That would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so and now you are trying to do art with tree maps. That that's pretty <laughs> amazing. Right? I mean, it's it's so interesting to hear uh, an academic like you doing turning into art. I'm really really curious to to hear more about that. How you came to this after doing a lot of research in this area? How you came up with the idea of doing art? I don't know. I think we have this artificial. Most of us have this artificial. Um, I don't know, distinction between art, science, and research, and whatever, but I'm really, really interested to hear what you think about it. And and by the way, I think this is one of the driving ideas be behind our podcast. I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to to play the role of the researcher and academic, and Moritz tries to play the, 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 the role of artist slash designer but the more we talk and the more we agree so I mean there's really no distinction between the two things at least this is what we, we, we believe well I think that's really a good topic for discussion and I'm just one voice of many so uh, <laughs> you'll have different opinions but um, I told you already about my background which involved the concern for photography and visual composition, at least, and, and visual design. Um, and also, all during the 60s, when I was a student in New York, I was a frequent visitor at the Museum of Modern Art. And so the exhibits of the op art and the pop art and the experiments in art and technology and Namjoon Pike and so many other advanced thinkers were very influential to me. Uh, also, the 20th century modernist and later abstract expressionist artists were important to me. And, uh, of course, as we'll see, you know, character personalities such as Mondrian were clearly using geometric shapes and Mark Rothko and Paul Clay and Hans Hoffmann, Joseph Albers' homage to the square uh, was a wonderful exploration of color and shape. And so I was fascinated by all those ideas. Uh, it's maybe worth mentioning that one of my earlier contributions, let's say, in 1972 and 73, was what we called structured flowcharts. <laughs> and eventually they became known as um, Nasi Schneiderman diagrams. Oh, yeah. So yeah. here was another one of those aha moments. I was attending a talk about software engineering when I was a graduate student. And, um, and the argument was that the old tree map, the old uh, flowcharts were no longer useful, that uh, we had to think in terms of structured programming, if then else, and do while. And so it struck me that the go-to and the arrows in flowcharts were not a good idea. And so in 15 minutes, I drew the basic ideas of how to have nested rectangles to show uh, and other shapes to show 
the if-then-else structure, the do-while, and the recursive nature of programs that were being written in these new languages. And uh -huh. so I came back and to Stony Brook, where I was a graduate student, and my colleague was Isaac Nassi. And together, he was studying more of this directly in his dissertation work. I was still working on database things. And uh -huh. So he helped formulate these ideas in a more organized way. And we submitted this paper. Here's another great story. And it's on the website, on my website. So uh, we submitted this paper to the communication of the ACM. And it was rejected in a few weeks, very quickly, <laughs> with the message that the authors should collect all copies of this paper and burn them. <laughs> and I have never gotten such a strong uh, rejection as that. So you can see the scan of that uh, that rejection letter uh, on my website. But Nasi Schneiderman diagrams were also a visual representation of programs. And they became a huge success story for 30 years. And, uh, you know, there's thousands of papers and hundreds of software implementations, uh, dozens of patents. It's an international standard. It's taught and used in many places. It's, its utility and its usage has declined uh, with newer programming strategies and interactive development environments. But it was great fun that without doing much, this idea traveled very well. And so I had the understanding that visual representations had great power, but also they provoked strong responses, negative as well as positive. And so um, it was... Uh, uh, it was very interesting to see during the 1990s how the tree maps emerged, how they were accepted or not by different groups, and uh, how they uh, spread to different fields of work. Um, now, you asked me also about the times. So, you know, when we published this in 1991 and 92, there was, still was not an information visualization conference that began in 1995 I believe mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. 1995 we had a we then had already information visualization conference by 1999 you may remember with Stu Card and Jock McInlay we wrote the book readings in information visualization sure. so we were sure. beginning to help form the idea of what was this new discipline and next year, we'll be celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Information Visualization Conference. Um, so by the late 1990s, people, some people began to see how this idea was important. Stukard wrote a very good set of pr cognitive principles as to why information visualization would be helpful. And so we began to understand and apply that in many areas. And, of course, we moved on and, and the idea of Spotfire and the dynamic queries began in 1991, two, three. Uh, and Christopher Allberg spent the summers of 1991 and 1993 working with us. And we published the paper in the CHI conference of 1994, um, and that uh, about the project we called Film Finder. 
which was a result of an IBM funding to develop a catalog. If we had 10,000 videos, how would we enable users to explore 10,000 videos? So we developed this visual interface. And by 1997, Christopher Allberg formed the company Spotfire. Uh, and I was pleased to serve on the board of directors for five years. And that was a great success story. I learned a lot about business and how ideas travel and how innovations become successes. And uh, it grew to 200 people, which was a great success story. Pharmaceutical drug discovery was the main uh, initial uh, application and showed success there. And then uh, chemical informatics, oil and gas discovery, production manu manufacturing, and so on. So uh, by 2007, that was purchased by TIBCO, and that was a very satisfying story that took 10 years uh, to unfold. And so uh, I had the chance to see close at hand how ideas travel from universities to business successes. Yeah, I think that Marik? Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, no, I think as far as I know, uh, Spotfire was the first uh, the first success of information visualization on the market, right? I mean, I think so. Right, the first large success. Now we have Tableau, for example, done by our colleagues, also from academia, from Stanford, uh, Jock McInlay, Pat Hanrahan, and others went to Seattle, formed a company, and it's a great success story. And their approach to business was somewhat different. They are more horizontal. They want to reach everyone. And they have, I, I spoke at their recent user conference uh, meeting in Washington, D.C. with 4,000 people attending. Yeah, so, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, yeah. And they are listed on the stock market and they're a nice success story. I mean, now that I think about it, if we look at the success on the market of information visualization, most of the the most successful companies come from the work of academics. Am I right? I never saw it this way. Um, but <laughs> many of them. Come. Many of Not them. Um, I think what's happened um, is that we have only a few examples of companies that are strictly infoviz, like Tableau. What happens is the InfoViz idea gets bought by another company and embedded in other products. And this is most strong with IBM, which bought Cognos, and then I and then it bought iLog and SPSS and i2. So we have, you know, this integration is its its best application, I would say. That um, visualization on its own is a harder uh, harder s um, product to sell, but when it's part of a end-to-end -end solution, uh, then it becomes more natural as a success story. Yeah, yeah. But I was thinking at things like <clears throat> the the huge success of D3, which really struck me as unbelievably successful. Right? It's not really a product, but the the rate of adoption was. Amazing. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, but, but there's a question. Where's the business side? 
Yeah, you sure. don't have sure. a D3 company. Company, sure. Uh, but open source toolkits like D3 are quite wonderful and uh, very much appreciated. They're excellent engineering aspects. They're embedding in a browser. Um, and beautiful animations made them attractive. Uh, last year, it was an amazing story. In my class on visualization, six out of the seven project teams quickly adopted D3. Uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. And that was, you know, they were willing to learn this new tool uh, because of the high payoff it had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so we were... Oh, yes, let's talk about art. Let's talk about <laughs> art. <Yeah. laughs> um, so, how did you come up with the TreeMap art project? Maybe you first want to describe what it is? Right. So, over, <clears throat> over these 20 years, I came to see that uh, the tree maps we made sometimes, sometimes, were very appealing. The colors and the shapes and the layout made for attractive ideas and people said, oh, you should frame it and put it on your wall. And I heard that so many times that I decided, okay, let me spend the summer <clears throat> and try to find a way to make tree maps with real data about real problems, but let me try and use the tree map algorithm. And by now we had five different tree map algorithms uh, and try to make something that was aesthetically appealing. So it's an interesting question of the bridge between functional, which was entirely my motivation for tree maps, and the idea of something aesthetic. And our original tree map tool, which is still free to download for anyone who wants to try to make their own, um, is uh, has features in it that let us remove the technical aspects, the labels and the legends and the and the scales and all the other things that are necessary for us an effective visualization, and show only the color and the shapes in a way that lets the viewer focus on the aesthetic aspects. And in the TreeMap art project page, um, I, I put down that there were um, four different aesthetic principles that could be exercised. First, the layout, which of the five algorithms to use, the slice and dice, the squareify, the order, the strip, and so on. What colors? That turns out to be the important, really strong effect. The aspect ratio of the entire image, would it be square or golden ratio or would it be narrow and wide or tall? And then the prominence of the borders for each region and each level and how, how strongly we drew those borders. Uh, and so those are the things during the summer we played with. And on the website of the TreeMap Art Project, uh, we show you... 50 or 60 of our draft designs of the things we tried to do. Um, and then <clears throat> we chose from those 12 that we really liked. And actually, we, we did a little crowdsourcing, inviting friends and colleagues and students 
to vote on their favorite ones. And it was very interesting because the vote did not converge on one or two being the most favorite, but they had many, many different favorites. And so we chose 12 of them. And I was pleased to work with a wonderful graduate student who had been in my course and proved to be a good designer. His name uh, is Minhaz Kazi. And so together we worked during the summer and chose 12 that we liked and we polished them and cleaned them up and dealt with the colors and, and then began exploring printing and various sizes and different print techniques and different printing offices. And so that was uh, another effort that took another month till we were happy with our design and the printers we chose. And uh, then we began to make the production versions. Mm -hmm. So we decided to make them all the same, 24 inches by 36 inches. And, and we added paragraphs of description that told about what was the data and then what we were trying to accomplish. So some of them looked like Mondrian, and we used Mondrian's color palette to highlight them. Others, we had data about the state of Maryland and its grants for energy renewal. So there was solar and there was wind and four kinds, and we used the four colors of the Maryland flag to choose the color palette. Um, and so on, we went through Hans Hoffman's work um, and, and Joseph Albers. And so we developed uh, a range of these, which we tried many versions of, uh, many versions of. And in the final exhibit, uh, which you can see online, or we did finally print them all and get them mounted and framed and hung in the hallways of computer science at the University of Maryland. Uh, and that happened uh, at the last week of August, finally. And so they're hanging there now for almost two months. And it's very interesting to see the reaction. Of course, in the beginning, my colleagues wondered, what is this strange beast? What's going on here? What's happened to Ben <laughs> Schneiderman? You know, what's he doing? And over time, though, it was very satisfying to see that it takes a while. And they began to come back to me and they say, you know, I went to see him and it's terrific. It's exciting. They're creative. They're beautiful. And they started to ask me for copies. Can I get one for my office? And so we began to have a little bit of a uh, an, an interest in it. And so we prepared a special prints for some of our colleagues to put in their office. And so that was very nice. Mm -hmm. So, Ben, there is, there is one question off the top of my head. Uh, so you briefly mentioned that in the, in the, um, the way you prepared the... Um, the final three maps, you had at least a caption saying what the data is about, right? Um, so I'm wondering, do you think that the beauty of the visualization comes exclusively from the aesthetics of it? Or knowing what's, what, what's the data behind that adds something to it? I mean... Yeah, that's really interesting. And it depends who you ask. It depends who you ask, because there are some people, there's a whole range. Some 
my goal was to minimize the uh, technical aspects, as I said, in the visual design. And the explanations were only partial explanations. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that people wouldn't look at it too much as a technical functional piece, but would look at it as aesthetic, where they look at the colors and just, you know, relax and enjoy. <laughs> so, for and instance, you don't have, you don't have labels, right? Correct. Correct. There's no labels, there's no legend, there's no color palette, um, but in the description <laughs> we give a kind of incomplete, but at least some sort of explanation. It's so sort of a tease, right? More complete description. <laughs> All right. Well, right, right. But I didn't want people to think of them as technical. I wanted them right. to think about them as art and look at them for their aesthetic principles. So some people succeeded to do that. Other people told me very clearly, I'm too much of an analytic person. I want to know what every box means. I want to know what every color means. I want to know why it's there. And I understand that. And I was trying to get away from that because... For 20 years, that's what I did. And so I wanted to try something new, which focused more on the art and the, the aesthetic components. And I should say, not all my artist friends were um, charmed by this approach either. Some like this, but others said, you know, it's not really art. Okay? <laughs> it's still constrained by the tree map algorithm. It's constrained by the data. You didn't have the full freedom to do what you wanted. You were limited and constrained. And yes, that's true. And so it's a kind of middle ground between the expression or abstract expressionist ideas um, of the 60s and the technical. So some people call this data art. Yeah. Okay, data yeah. art sure. as a middle ground. There's data visualization on one side or information visualization as a more technical goal of serving users. And there's the artistic side on the others, which is just, you know, free form artists. Sometimes there's computer art, which uses computers to create shapes and forms and colors in a algorithmic way, but it's much more focused on the art. This is kind of a middle space. And, of course, middle spaces, when they're new ideas, are not always comfortable for people. <laughs> sure, sure, and so sure, sure. Even though I'm, I'm not sure I fully agree with this comment that this is not art, because in a way, every single art has some, some forms of constraints, right? I mean, there are, I think there's no art without constraints. What is really beautiful of art is being able to create something beautiful within some constraints, right? The constraint itself generates part of the art. I mean, that's Absolutely. the way I see it. Yeah, and the interesting Andrea? thing with the tree map art is also how clearly now you see these algorithms, like what the the nature of the slice and dice is and the nature of the squarified tree map. I think it can be illustrated really nicely with these very pure images. Very nice, yes. I hope that some people will take away some technical lessons as well and we'll come to see and try to use tree maps for new applications and maybe in new ways. 
but uh, back to the issue of, of constraints. Certainly, Mondrian worked with constraints. Yeah. He had very clear principles about how he did his layouts. Uh, and so, you know, we see those kind. And, and Joseph Albers, certainly. I mean, he was very constrained. He had these homage to the square of one square within another square within another square. And he had a few variations, but it was really a very limited range of, of geometric shapes. But he explored the color relationships in a way that nobody else had ever done before. And so, you know, these each of these projects um, were rejected by many people, uh, but eventually gained appreciation. And I hope I will have the same uh, uh, satisfaction that I will have my uh, my supporters who uh, who like it. So I'm pleased that a half dozen bloggers have already mentioned and described the TreeMap Art Project. I'm pleased to do this podcast with you. And I'm happy to report to you that my initial response from the National Academy of Sciences in Washington is that they will they will they plan to host this exhibit starting in in October 2014 so approximately a year from now Fantastic. so that will raise the prominence and that will uh, show give give my colleagues something to think about <laughs> <laughs> because they will see that somebody else appreciates this idea and will get some greater visibility at that time so I see this as a longer-term effort. Another effort you may know about is uh, Manuel Lima, who did the wonderful website called Visual Complexity. Sure, sure. And, we, we know Manuel personally, yeah. Right? He's and he lives, lives in New York, and he did a book on networks. And his next book, which comes out in February 2014 from Princeton University Press, will be about tree structures. Yep. And a large part of it is about tree maps. Uh, and I'm pleased to have written the foreword for that book. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so, yeah. you know, there will be further attention to the question of um, visualizations as art. I, I should say also Kati Borner at Indiana University has made important contributions here and her work and her exhibits, Places and Spaces, have also been shown at the National Academy of Sciences and uh, – they uh, they had a positive influence on getting many people to think about visualization in an artistic way. I should say also, you know, I continue now the summer project is done. I come uh, I continue and come back to my work on, on medical information visualization. Our work on event flow is thriving and we have yet new visual representations of temporal event sequences. If you think of a patient history as 10,000 medical events over a hundred year lifetime, um, and if you give me a million or 10 million of these uh, histories, how can I show you a compact one screen, one screen representation of all these patients that shows you the common patterns of, of treatment and outcome? And so I'm continuing to work on the technical side for applications, but always driven by meaningful applications. And I'm very happy to be working on medical records as a, as a good uh, project. So Ben, another thing I'm curious about, so 
during summer you've been working mainly on on art and aesthetics, right? So what what do you think we can learn? I mean, we people who are more on the functional side of of visualization, what can we learn from the artistic and aesthetic side? Well, you know, you have to remember that um, fun is part of functional and that things that are functional can also be beautiful and fun and enjoyable. And I think it's true that uh, we can work to make the visualizations we design to be aesthetically appealing. I think the main problem I see in many applications is the poor choice of color palettes. And um, I think I we all need more education in choosing better color palettes. And then I think design uh, studio courses should be part of the training in computer science uh, for those who are doing visual design. Um, I was very pleased to work with Audra Buck Coleman, uh, professor in the School of Fine Arts at University of Maryland, and she helped one of our students, John Guerra Gomez, in his Treeversity project uh, that John presented at the uh, last the InfoViz conference just a few weeks ago in Atlanta, and she was very helpful. And um, she prepared a one-credit course for computer science students, and we had 15 students who took her course, and every week. They met together and they looked at the work that these students were doing in terms of the aesthetics and the design and how they might improve the, the design and the aesthetics so that it would be more appealing but also more effective in showing the data in a proper way. Okay, so you think that we should actually include uh, in our courses some elements of aesthetics and design. Absolutely. That's so great to hear, Ben. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, and also I heard uh, Jake van Wyk, he also made a similar point in his in his closing keynote on this year's WIS conference. And it's it's so fantastic that um, like important people like you and Jake see this need to bring these worlds together because I often still feel there's, there's reservations on, on both sides in some form. And such uh, great things can happen when we when we can bring these two worlds together, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I the the goal of bringing them together is maybe strong, but at least learning from each other and respecting each other's contribution, I think, is is a a, a very possible and very fruitful way to go forward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, one thing that I noticed myself is that some kind of people are skeptical when something is too beautiful. I don't know why. <laughs> but I don't it's know. the dumped blonde effect, right? Yeah, that's right. Like if, if something is too aesthetically pleasing, it must not be serious. I don't know, serious enough. I don't know. It's weird. Some people... That's, I agree. That, that's, I agree. That's, that's, that's a real danger. In some people, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but I love yeah, how you point out that there's a functional role to aesthetics and this is very much my take on the topic as well and of any serious designer, you know, like that's that's what we work with and this is how we right. how we affect change like by by producing certain emotions when you look at something, by guiding people in a in a subtle way. 
And um, yeah, and still we yeah. I, I read a blog post that sort of makes this fall dichotomy between function and form. And I, I read these blog posts every three weeks and I'm I'm getting tired of it. Yeah. Well, I think you have to remember Steve Jobs said he worked at the intersection of technology and liberal arts is what he said. Yeah. Yeah. Now I think he meant art, design, social sciences. And, and many other forms. So that's where I think the great contribution of the future will lie by integrative experiences that bring together the work from multiple disciplines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talking about the... A Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I think this is a very big challenge for educators like us because today, I mean, if we want to train our, our students properly, we have to give them a well-rounded kind of education, right? It's no longer yeah. enough to just uh, learn computer science the old way, for instance, right? So now you have computer right. scientists who come to our school and they, they expect to be taught only technical, um, technical things, but actually in some cases if they are taught only technical things, they might not be successful, right? Correct, correct. And we have the examples of Hollywood animation and and 3D video games where aesthetics and narrative are essential to the success of those media. So I think we have examples. Not everyone will appreciate this bridging or marriage of disciplines. Just as, you know, my early efforts with software psychology, which I call the marriage of disciplines, led to much resistance as well. Still, after 30 years now, I would say, It's a success story that the CHI conferences and the work of combining psychological methods and theories with design and implementation of advanced technologies is, is what makes the success. That's why five billion people have a cell phone or a smartphone in their pockets. Uh, we have, of course, the success of the chip designers, uh, but also the success of the graphic designers and the user interface designers. And I think that is increasingly appreciated as a key, one of the keys to success of commercial and technological projects is that uh, we should attend to the aesthetics. I mean, this is not a new idea, but it has its new forms. Beautiful bridges were always, and beautiful buildings were You know, for a thousand years or more, we're understood that a building should be not only functional, but it should be beautiful. And I think the, the, the buildings we live in, the technologies we, we, we live in uh, need to be functional and beautiful. Yeah, I, I fully, I totally agree with you. That's that's so important. I think if I remember well, Donald Donald Norman wrote a, a whole book about about it, right? I think it was called Emotional Design or something like that. Yeah, I mean, he was dealing not so much with visual but emotional yeah. reactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, and in so, fact, architects had this notion of um yeah beauty and utility going hand in hand for a long time and yes. in fact andrew with his uh, andrew vandemere i think in this aesthetics paper yeah. also mentions that uh, firmitas utilitas venustas principle yeah. that <laughs> yeah we we need in software we need everywhere in life basically right absolutely yeah. 
Absolutely. Shall we speculate about the future? I would be much interested in your idea, like where with this bird's eye perspective that you have now after following the whole field, what is the trajectory of of information visualization at the moment? Where do you see it going? What's is yeah. it going to diversify for, uh, diversify further, or where, where is it going? Well, we're just at the beginning, so there's a lot of hard work to do. And you have to remember that while those people who are engaged in this work uh, see it as a success story already, we are still only a small fraction of the population. And it will take a hundred years, as I said at the opening, uh, that for these ideas to spread. We need to create national educational programs of visual literacy. We have to teach people who resist visual approaches to think visually, that we use visual reasoning strategies for analyzing big data. There's many, many places that this these new ideas so, uh, need to be applied. So the first moment of excitement um, is, well, there still is excitement. I would say I love to go to the InfoViz conference. I still see many new ideas. But now there is the hard work of moving from 1% of the population to 10% of the population and then to 50% of the population. Uh, and so I see many companies and government organizations have to work very hard to promote visualization inside their communities. Remember, we live in this small world of people who are already sympathetic to visualization, but uh, we have to reach our job is to reach the wider world of people who are not yet sympathetic, who don't use visualization. And so that will that will be an important challenge. So that's, I think, the central, the central um, direction that will occupy many, many people. How do we bring visualization to high schools and junior high schools and lower schools as part of their training so that it becomes a natural way for people to solve problems, okay? Um, I think there are problems furthermore of improving collaboration over visualizations, of integrating visualization into existing toolkits. Um, there's just a variety of things to be done. Um, we work a lot on the medical space and in the May issue of IEEE Computer, we have a description about how visualization can help in medicine, uh, both for personal health, for clinical treatment, and for public health users, and we, we lay out seven challenges of what needs to be done for, for us to achieve the full success of using visuals, visual reasoning strategies to make healthier lives. I think that's our challenge. I think that... Okay? That's that's really really interesting, and uh, so you you seem to suggest that education is going to be one of the major, the major, um, yeah, the major factors in having in turning visualization to a very successful and and widely widely adopted kind of technology, right? Yes. 
It's interesting because I think we're we're not targeting students at all <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my 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 yeah, my personal experience with visualization, and this is something I started realizing very recently, is that most people just cannot read what we do. I mean, <laughs> as we no, yeah. it's, no, it's I mean, true. It's absolutely I mean, true. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Yeah. And uh, as we move just pass beyond something as simple as a bar chart or a line chart, which for some people are already quite complicated, mm -hmm. people just don't know how to read it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and, and what's the consequence of that? Should, should we just give up and say that people cannot read these things and then they are useless? No, I don't think so. But on the other hand, I think that we really need some kind of strong effort in educating people to read to actually learning a new language. I think this is a new language that people need That's to learn. Right. That's right. It's a new language of problem solving. The professionals we work with, whether they're medical or or scientists, the, the strongest support we get is once after a few weeks of using our tools, they say, you gave me a new language. Yeah, we are Hello? having connection problems. But I think it should be fine now. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to mention again that uh, right. it's still not clear to me how we're going to do that because most of the focus in visualization is still mainly on the technology, right? Both in academia and, uh, and out of academia, visualization is, is mainly um, discussed as a, from the technological point of view, right? Well, Correct. on the academic side, we also have some interesting research on, on what works, what doesn't work. We try to lay out some design space. We try to run some studies. But I don't see much of an effort in trying to educate people. And I think that's something Correct. that we really, really need to focus on. Right. I think the biggest success stories are with the journalists and the New York Times especially has been very effective in, uh, in showing examples and making people aware of the power of uh, not just static visualizations as in the printed paper, but interactive visualizations on their websites. It's uh, wonderful accomplishments that uh, Matt Erickson and his team and wonderful people like Amanda Cox and um, Mike Bostock and Sean Carter. Um, they're, they're, every week, their visualizations are doing a lot to educate people in the value for many, many different application areas, whether it's politics or economics or sports. Uh, they show excellent visualizations yeah i think in a way we have this paradoxical situation that so so far we've been saying that beauty and aesthetics is important and i fully agree but on the other hand i see that sometimes visualization is perceived only from the aesthetic point of view right and this is also some kind of problem i think that some people look at at a visualization and think, oh, wow, that's that's totally cool. But then they don't spend even a few seconds trying to understand whether there is any message behind that <clears> or if there is a way to communicate this message in a better way, right? So I think right. that's, I, that's I, a I think, challenge here for visualization. Right. I think you, you see that most strongly in the in the growing field of network visualization where the Manuel Lima's website visual complexity shows 770 different network visualizations and most of them are terrible. Yeah. They're just not, uh, that you cannot learn something 
from these visualizations. And so uh, we need to do a lot better in improving the quality. They look cool, but they're not necessarily useful. The excessive use of color, the excessive use of animation are interfering um, with the effective use of visualization for functional goals. And so while they may be aesthetic, they are not always useful. And finding that blend where you have useful and aesthetic is the goal. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but I'm, I'm relaxed there because I think, I mean, many people are now fascinated with these new simply complex images we can create and you know they have this natural touch and it's very like lots of detail and it's i mean i think this pure let's say aesthetic fascination will go away and then in the end the in a few years you know everybody will be tired of these images and then in the you know the the more the more interesting stuff will just remain <laughs> i'm pretty pretty sure about I that i like your optimistic view <laughs> <laughs> i believe in the in the good yes <laughs> well, we have to have an optimistic view um, okay i think we should try to stop here but yeah, we could we, we could keep talking for hours and hours <laughs> right, I mean, it's, right, it's there are so many things uh, so before we stop i'm just curious and i think some of our listeners may be curious as well. What if I want to have one or more prints? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for asking. Yes, uh, all of the high-resolution PDFs that we produced, our 12 uh, images, are all on the website, free to download, and anyone who wishes for personal use to print them, please do it. Please frame them, put them in your hallways, in your offices. I'm happy to have that. If you want a signed version, aha, uh, some people want me to sign them. If you want a signed version, I will print it for you and I will mail it to you. But we ask you to make a contribution of $500 to the Human Computer Interaction Lab at the University of Maryland. So uh, that will give you a uh, authentic signed piece of artwork <laughs> and will help us continue our research. Does this come with a frame as well? <laughs> Framing and shipping are extra. <laughs> I just want to make sure. Always negotiating. <laughs> right, that's fair. That's fair. No, we're happy to make them free for those who want to print them on their own. Uh, there are websites which will let you print them if you don't have your own printer and they will mail them to you. You're free to do that. I encourage people to do that. And if people want to uh, have this exhibit in their, play, in their institution, they should contact me and we'll discuss if it's possible that our exhibit can travel to, mm, to many other places. Well, New York would be a perfect setting. All right. So find me a home in New York, uh, Enrico. I'll try. I'll try. Uh, Cannot mm -hmm. promise, okay. but I'll try. Let's ask Paola uh, what we can do. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Talk to Paola. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maurits, do you have a direct connection? Not there? so much, no. Not so much, okay. No. Well, let's start and let's see where we go with it. I'm, uh, I hope we'll have... I hope the tree map art project has a long history and that it uh, it continues to grow and and collect attention and also interest in 
the use of visualization both for artistic as well as functional purposes. Okay, good. Thanks, Ben. It's Thank been you. a big pleasure having you on the show. I hope you will want to come back on the show again in the future sometime. We have so many things to 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 discuss and it's really, really interesting and enlightening in a way having you on the sure. show discussing about I'd things. love to talk about the medical informatics visualization sure. and our, sure. with our colleagues at University of Maryland, Baltimore. Uh, in this new center for health imaging and bioinformatics is a great opportunity. So uh, that's uh, that that would be a great topic. Sounds okay. Great. Okay. Yeah. We Thank should do that. Thank you both. Thank All you, right. Ben. Bye bye. 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 Thanks so much, Ben. Bye bye.